On this episode of This Week in Linux, the Raspberry Pi Foundation announced a really cool new product called the Raspberry Pi 400, which is a PC inside of a keyboard. That's right, we'll get to that in a bit. Dell announced some really cool news themselves about hardware privacy controls, so I'm really excited about that. And we've also got a lot of new releases this week with a new version of a desktop environment called LXQt. That's a lightweight, Qt-based desktop environment. And there's also been a lot of other new releases like from YouTube-DL, PitTV's video editor, and the distro Open Indiana. We've also got some cool follow-ups this week from Linux Mint related to the Chromium discussion and also support for HBO Max. All that and so much more coming up right now on your weekly source for Linux good news. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean and by Bitwarden. Welcome to episode 124 of This Week in Linux, a weekly Linux news podcast, a part of the Destination Linux network. I'm Michael Tunnell, and if you're new to the show, this is a show that I will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I will give you my take on the latest topics using my over 20 years experience as a Linux user. Before we get started this week, we're going to do a little bit of housekeeping. So we have the 200th episode of Destination Linux coming up very soon. That is happening next week on November 15th. And there's a lot of stuff planned for this celebration of the 200th episode. Hey everyone, this is Post-Production Michael. And I want to let you know that we have made some changes for the Destination Linux 200th episode. We have decided that we're going to be doing it live. So everyone who would like to watch it, you can watch it on YouTube or Twitch. So everyone can be able to participate on the live channel chat and watch it live for the 200th episode and patrons can still join us in the zoom room to actually have a conversation afterwards in the weekly hangout uh, that we do every week so if you want to be a patron and join that be sure to go to the destination linux website destinationlinux.org and you can find links for that uh, in the show notes below as well but again destination linux 200th episode is going to be live so be sure to join us on november 15th sunday at 1 p.m eastern time i'll have links for the time zone conversion in the show notes below and including the new, next DLN Game Fest is happening on the same day, November 15th. And we're going to have that starting at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. That's UTC minus 5. I'll have a link in the a time zone converter in the video description and in the show notes for this episode so that you can you know compare the two for not only the live stream of the show, but also for the DLN Game Fest that is happening again on November 15th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And also be sure to check out the DLN store where there's a bunch of great stuff there. There's mugs, stickers, hoodies, shirts, all kinds of stuff. And we're adding much more coming soon. And if you have any suggestions, feel free to leave it in the chat or in the comments. And we will definitely be making some more stuff, including the Because Collection. Because I have I created this collection that has a bunch of different stuff from some, for examples, that are not necessarily related to any particular show, like the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt is in there, and as well as more stuff coming in there as well. And you might be wondering why is it called the because collection why are these all grouped together and the answer to that is because so go to the dlnstore.com to check out the bus because collection and all the other great stuff on the store a first in the show this week is a really cool announcement from the raspberry pi foundation and that is that they have released the raspberry pi 400 which is a pc inside of a keyboard so Eben Upton from the Raspberry Pi Foundation in their blog post, post said this, uh, and I quote, Raspberry Pi has always been a PC company. 
Inspired by the home computers of the 1980s, our mission is to put affordable, high-performance, programmable computers in the hands of people all over the world. And inspired by these classic PCs, here is the Raspberry Pi 400, a complete personal computer built into a compact keyboard. So this is a really cool idea. I love the modern combination of the modern design plus the retro style of having a keyboard computer because those were like very common and actually I think they were the only options in the first, you know, early days of the PC world in terms of, you know, you attach a, all the everything's in one one piece and one component with the keyboard and I think it's really cool that they're trying to make something like that again and they're even modifying the motherboard and the stru the structure of the Raspberry Pi to make this possible. So the Raspberry Pi 4 has been integrated in a new uh, modifi modification of the structure. So let's go ahead and just talk about what's the difference. So it isn't a regular a form factor for the Raspberry Pi. It's been redesigned so that the ports go out of the back of the device. Uh, so there's no extenders or anything. They just kind of restructured it. So also, like, what's the difference between the, the motherboard and the, uh, for both the 400 and the 4? Well, there's is in addition to the reef, the form factor change, they're also changing certain components. Like the the processor is slightly different. So it's basically the it's just a newer iteration of the same processor. So it's the BCM2711 is in the 4, and the BCM2711CO is in the 400. And the, But they're both 4-core uh, four, uh, four Cortex-A72 ARM chips, uh, but the difference is that the one in the 400 has a 1.8 gigahertz instead of the 1.5 gigahertz that the 4 has. Uh, it also has one less USB 2.0 port, uh, and the USB-C port that is in the keyboard is only for power. It can't be used for on-the-go OTG stuff. And there's no audio port either on the keyboard version, but you can still get audio over the HDMI that comes with the out-of-the-box kit. So are the, uh, the good, you know, on the ready-to-go kit, that's what it's called. So let's talk about that. So there's two different ways to get the Raspberry Pi 400. There's the $70 price, which gives you just the Raspberry Pi 400, which is the keyboard retro style thing. It doesn't come with a supply and a power supply, and it doesn't come with any additional hardware. Or you can get the ready-to-go kit, which is $100 and comes with a bunch of other stuff, including uh, the Raspberry Pi 400, of course, uh, also a, a, the official Raspberry Pi USB mouse, also an official USB uh, uh, USB-C power supply, or Raspberry Pi, and an SD card with the Raspberry Pi OS pre-installed, as well as the official uh, Raspberry Pi Beginner's Guide and a micro HDMI to HDMI cable to connect it to your own monitor and that sort of stuff. So this is a really cool uh, thing about the, like the Raspberry Pi, if you haven't heard of it before, which I'm, I'd be very shocked if you haven't, is a system on a chip, like a small computer that allows you to do a lot of int interesting things in terms of doing appliance-based stuff, doing some testing, learning, all sorts of great stuff in it. And the fact that they're doing this new multiple like form factor structure is really cool because I actually am, I'm, I'm really looking forward to see what's coming after this as well because, you know, making more products based on just having the board is very nice because I like the concept of them kind of branching out and to make different forms factors of the Raspberry Pi and still having that value of all the support for all the projects that support the Pi and all that kind of thing. Very, very cool. And uh, there's a little bit more details about the uh, hardware. I'll give you just a little bit. Uh, like I said, it's the Broadcom BCM2711CO quad-core ARM Cort Cortex-A72. It has four gigs of RAM. 
there's multiple different versions of the Raspberry Pi 4 that have different versions of RAM. They use the 4 gig for this. Uh, there's also storage for push uh, micro SD card slot, which is fantastic. I think, uh, I don't know if they brought it back for all the Raspberry Pis, but there used to be a Pi where you we insert the micro SD card, you just push on it and it would pop in and pop out versus the uh, some other models where you had to just kind of pull it out and they didn't have that that uh, function of push in and pop, and pop, pop out. Like that is a ridiculously good feature that was on only a few models and I'm really happy to see that they put it back into this one. They should put it on all of them because it's way more convenient to have that structure, uh, especially with the micro SD card slot uh, because it's a lot more difficult to you know grab a hold of them depending on what kind of case you have. And that sort of stuff where, of course, in this one, the case is the keyboard itself. So you don't have to worry about that. But in terms of like uh, purchasing a case for a regular Pi, that could be an issue. So I'm glad to see that they're using that again. And hopefully they apply it to all of them. It has two micro HDMI ports up to uh, with one of them that goes uh, to 4K, uh, 4K 60 and the other one has 4K 30. It's got a, a RJ45 gigabit Ethernet. It has 2.4 gigahertz and 5, and 5 gigahertz support for Wi-Fi 5. It also has support for Bluetooth 5.0 and a bunch of other great stuff, including access to the 40, 40 pin GPIO boards, which of course people would want for a Raspberry Pi. So that's pretty cool. And there's a lot of other stuff. And if you'd like to learn more about this, the Raspberry Pi, you can check out the links in the show notes. And I'm looking forward to seeing what all the other options and form factors that they're going to be doing, especially since you can compare it to the, the Pi Book Pro, which was linked in the chat earlier today. Uh, it was very interesting because the Pi Book Pro is a, is a device that is kind of like a laptop that you plug your Raspberry Pi into. Now, it's not, it's, they're basically still separate. You still have to, it's kind of like, the Raspberry Pi becomes a dongle that powers the PiBook Pro, but the PiBook Pro is only like $80 and stuff plus shipping and that kind of thing. So combining it, it's not super expensive. And I think that's very interesting. Hopefully in the future, they can do a thing where they kind of combine the two and Raspberry Pi makes their own like, you know, cost-effective laptop, which would be a very good way to introduce people who are brand new to computing and learning stuff. That way, instead of having, you know, all these different components to con connect them together, they can have one. I think that'd be fantastic. And I do think that the, the keyboard, the keyboard PC is a really cool idea because I love the, the retro aspects of it and embracing that, but also doing a modern style. I think there's a lot of potential there. And if you'd like to learn more about it, the Raspberry Pi 400, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release of LXQt 0.16. So this is about six months after the latest, re the previous release of 0.15, and there's a lot of new stuff in here, including some new themes and improved a uh, lot of different features. So let's talk about that. So they have a uh, new th three new themes: uh, Clear Looks, Cavantum, and Leech. I haven't actually heard of Leech before, so I'm looking. I'm curious about what that looks like. There's also improved notifications. So they've improved it so that you can view notifications on the screen with the mouse pointer, and they've also added better support for uh, Bluetooth audio devices in addition to that. And they also have some improvements to the LXQt panel, which gives new features like customizable auto-hiding for the status notifier, the ability to move windows to the next screen using a task button, which is very nice. It makes it a lot easier for people who are not familiar with shortcuts yet. Uh, so that's really cool. They also have some improvements to the file manager, both the lib uh, file manager dash uh, libfm-qt and pcmanfm-qt. 
LX Cute configuration improvements is also there for several new cute palette colors in the LX LX Cute config appearance pane. New default applications options for setting a default web browser and file manager and email client and that sort of stuff. They've also made some improvements to the LX image, which is a, a cute based image viewer. And they've added support for uh, resizing images, copying file paths, and a lot more stuff, as well as improvements to the power management system for LX Cute, which gives even uh, better power management overall, but also new power key section in the config dialog, which allows for customizing the power, suspend, and hibernate keys, which is also a very nice thing. If you're not familiar, LXQt is a lightweight desktop environment built on Qt. You can, I'll have links in the show notes to ch- check it out and you just want to see some screenshots and that kind of thing. LXQt is a really cool, uh, a lot of potential uh, desktop environment from the, uh, it's kind of, it was kind of born from the ashes of the LXDE project because the LXDE was uh, essentially uh, kind of locked in its lifespan of being based on GTK2. So the choice they had to make was either uh, switch to Qt or try to upgrade everything to GTK3. And they chose to switch to Qt by combining the teams of the Razer Qt team and the LXDE team and then made LXQt. So it's it has a lot of potential and there's a, been a lot of improvements uh, on the uh, for a, a, quite a while actually. However, it is kind of odd that they're still using this zero point whatever thing. They're on the 16th release. You just go ahead and go to 1.0. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure what you're waiting for, but it, you know, there's a lot of potential in LXQt, and I'm a big fan of the Qt uh, toolkit. And I think that having a combination of the Qt toolkit for the responsiveness and the flexibility that it offers in a lightweight desktop environment is just very cool. And if you'd like to learn more about it and check it out, I'll have links to it in the show notes below for the LXQt 0.16 release. Again, just go ahead and go to 1.0. But yeah, links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about the latest release of YouTube-DL. Now, this is not a huge release. This is mostly just a maintenance release, but this is kind of just to let you know about how I mentioned previously that just because the GitHub uh, repo is taken down by the DMCA takedown, it doesn't mean that the project is gone or anything really at all about the project because the project has their own website where you get the packages and everything. It's, that was just the source code. So the project itself is not hurt necessarily. It's just more of an irritant, the fact that they have to you know, find a new place for their source code or convince GitHub to let them pay back up. Uh, however, that whatever GitHub has been trying to get that to be done. They have contacted YouTube DL to make that happen, but we don't know what's happening in the back end yet. So maybe we'll find out more and I'll keep you up to date when we do. But for now, the latest release of YouTube DL is out and it's not a huge difference, but it has been improvements and they fixed some performances and bug fixes and stuff like that. Uh, but I just wanted to let you know that for those who are curious and worried about the project, it's not an issue pretty much at all in terms of it you know, being down. There have been some like speculations about whether or not they're going to move to GitLab or to or something else uh, because they were there were some mentions found in a new file uh, called release underscore GitLab dot sh. So there is people wondering, like, you know, trying to dig in to see what they're doing. Uh, but when you look at the Git address, it uses a local host, host term. So it may or may not be like a self-hosted GitLab or maybe run, someone running GitLab on their system locally or on a private server or something like that. So 
uh, they're not necessarily using the GitLab service, but this does this particular version does seem to be suggesting that they're going to be using some kind of GitLab instance. We don't know really for sure, but uh, there are some if like so if they were to do their own self-hosted version of GitLab, that would eliminate really any complaints that the RIA could do because they can't really go to a company and say take it down. They're like you you can't make us take down source code, so whatever, because uh, it's their own thing versus going to GitHub where GitHub has, you know, legal reper reper um, repercussions possible if they don't, whereas G YouTube DL wouldn't, especially if they're not even in the same country, you know. So there's depending on the situation there. Uh, but it is interesting because there's a lot of people who are kind of digging into the latest release to find out some stuff. So they wanted to know what exactly is in this release, and it's mostly just some bug fixes and some uh, additional fixes for uh, YouTube support and things like that. But also there are some talks about, like, um, are they going to get rid of the suggestions? And I do think that they should get rid of the test links and the, like, because the source code has some test links that essentially kind of imply that you can use it to download uh, music from YouTube. And while that is definitely definitely possible, it shouldn't be in the source code because that creates this, you know, target. Uh, and that's one of the main reasons that the RIA even did the DMCA takedown. So the, 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 the interesting thing is, have they taken it out yet? And so far, the answer is no, they haven't. So the latest release does include those test links that would be, uh, you know, grounds for RIA to be complaining about. So I, I do think that they should take it out just to kind of remove this issue. But looking at the comments for these tests, they're they're intended for testing specific YouTube scenarios, not necessarily to per, to download these particular links. So it's not just an arbitrary list of like forbidden fruit. It's they're using these as particular as a specific way of testing certain things. But at the same time, it probably would be better to not have it directly in the source code and just do it in their testing things to make sure that it works rather than having it, you know, as a, a an explainer to kind of like test the functions. I just it's a gray area right there. But anyway, just so you know, the project is still alive. Uh, we don't know where they're going to be hosting their source code, or if they're moving, or if whatever they're doing. We're you know we're kind of in the the dark on that, but it is still alive. This DMCA takedown is not going to hurt the project necessarily, other than being an inconvenience. But uh, there you go. If you want to get the latest version, I'll have links to their website in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new app platform service, which is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. With App Platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites quickly and easily. Simply point to your GitHub repository and let the App Platform do all the heavy lifting. It has support for Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, and Docker. DigitalOcean also runs their app platform on their own infrastructure, so your costs are significantly lower than with other products. Plus, their new app, their new app platform services on top of DigitalOcean Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. 
As a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free, actually better than free, because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, you can get started with a $100 free credit by going to do.co slash DLN to get started with the DigitalOcean's new app platform service. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, Dell has enabled Linux hardware privacy controls for the Linux kernel support. So Dell is adding code to the Linux kernel to allow disabling of webcams and microphones in its newest laptops. These are planned to be available in 2021, and they're actually going to initially be added as a keyboard shortcut. So uh, the quote from the patch from Dell says, Add support for Dell Privacy Driver from the Dell Units Equipped Hardware Privacy Design, which protects users' privacy of audio and camera from hardware level once the audio or camera privacy mode enabled. Uh, any applications will not get any audio or video stream if enabled. When users press the Control F4 hotkey, audio privacy mode will be enabled and camera mute hotkey is Control F9. So basically, when this is activated, no program can access the audio and video streams of the hardware. And they've they've sent this into a patch for the Linux kernel where they have they're calling this the Dell Privacy Drivers. So it's not necessarily it's not as good as like having a physical switch on the computer, but the, a physical switch also does add a lot of extra like milling and prototyping and all that stuff to make it work because you have to modify the actual computer to do that. So it's a it's an interesting combination between having a a, a hardware block but also activated through the keyboard. So there's uh there they haven't really said if, if it's possible to do it in the BIOS firmware aspects or you need to do it with the system running. Uh, so it, it appears that they're going to be just doing it for the system running, but in the future, because of the kernel updates and patches, but in the future, possibly, maybe they'll do it where you can do it like a more lower level. But I do understand the the shortcut approach. Uh, Pinebook Pro also has the shortcut approach uh, in a somewhat different way of doing it, though. Uh, but it's, it's, it's pretty cool that they're doing this because I think that you know, Dell recognizing this is something that people want is great, especially because Dell being a gigantic manufacturer of computers, it does show that, you know, privacy and security and that sort of stuff is getting more and more uh, to people's uh, attention and getting more and more attention from these companies is great because it just improves the overall landscape of people being able to you know, disable this stuff a lot easier versus having to get like the, you know, with a microphone is a lot harder to disable it because you can't just cover the microphone necessarily. It doesn't really work that way. I mean, you can, but it's just going to be muffled rather than completely disabled. Whereas the webcam, you can just cover it with something and that solves that part. But uh, having it built into the hardware and like this, these new bri- uh, privacy drivers that Dell's making is very, very cool. I'm happy to see this. And if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have links to the patch as well as some other articles about it in the show notes below. Up next in the show is some great news about HBO Max and it is back on Linux. Well, for now, we don't really know because they are still being kind of dismissive about Linux and support and whatever. But anyway, so if you're not familiar, in a previous episode, we covered the fact that HBO broke support for people who were customers using Linux. So this happened in August when they broke it. So the streaming service, they what they did is actually they cranked up the settings on the Widevine DRM system, which broke support for Linux because there's just the excessive amount of DRM can do that in terms of like the way that Winevine Winevine works, which is a 
Uh, Widevine, if you're not familiar, is a thing that is a DRM service that Google created. Most likely the issue is because they were enabling the verified media path requirement. Um, but in a response that when people they that um, Ars Technica asked HBO Max about what was going on, the response from HBO Max was unsurprisingly dismissive. So they say, and I quote, you may be able to stream HBO Max on Linux platforms, though it is not officially supported for HBO Max at this time. For supported browsers and devices, you need to go see the, HB, the HBO Max supported devices or visit the HBO Max Help Center for additional support. So basically, like, it may work, it may not, we don't care. Uh, representatives did not respond to a request for comment on whether the service had enabled the particular VMP or the verified media path requirement under Widevine, which is what broke CBS All Access for Linux users in earlier this year in January or so. Uh, but they, I'm not sure if they, CBS All Access ever fixed that or not. I think they might have, but I don't remember. But anyway, it's now working. So eventually someone fixed the issue with Winevine. The service is once again handing out licenses to Linux subscribers whose browsers support Winevine encryption. For example, there are a couple of, of browsers that support it, including, of course, Google Chrome, which also makes Winevine. And uh, also Chromium, if you do some changes to make it work, as well as Mo uh, Mozilla Firefox also works with Widevine. So uh, we don't know how long this will last, if it will last, but we do know that Linux PCs are not on the HBO's max list of supported devices. So it's great that we have support again. And I told you I'd keep you up to date, you know, what would happen. So we do have it back. How long that will last, I don't know. Hopefully it will, they won't, break it again for no apparent reason, but we don't know for sure. Uh, but there you go. If you wanted to watch HBO Max on Linux, you can again. So that's great. Up next in the show this week is the latest release of PitTV 2020.9. This is the non-linear video editor, if you're not familiar with it. This is actually the first major release since 2018. And they're using this new versioning scheme because they switched from the previous one, which was 0 0.999, now to 2020.9 because they've using, they're using a date-based versioning scheme starting with this release. So they, in the notes for this release, the quality directive, they said in quote says, uh, the user survey we conducted in 2013 revealed the most important point was to have a stable basic editor. So the, they did a lot of stuff to improve the stability and the performance. They've also done a lot of feature changes, which include they knew, they now have a new plugin system designed to extend Pit2V functionality in the medium term rather than waiting for the developers to always build everything out. Now people can who, who want to add extra features to it can now do so with this new plugin system, which is very cool. So they say it's targeted teams of develop editors rather than effect makers. Uh, they say there's also a new greeter, which replaces the old welcome wizard. It has a better overview of current and existing projects, and they also have improvements to uh, scaled proxy clips are now used if optimized media is too much for your hardware, which is fantastic, because if you're not familiar, proxy clips are really cool a way to be able to edit high-quality video without having to have high-quality video playing on the screen as you edit. So you can have a proxy clip, which will knock the quality down to like whatever you want you can even do like 480p and having 480p meaning you can uh, scrub through the timeline a lot easier rather than having to you know also play back the gigantic video depending on what you have like you could have 4k but then edit it in 480p and then when you output it it will output as the 4k or 1080p or whatever you want so that's what's cool about proxy clips 
And also they have a redesigned effects library, a developer console plugin for interacting with the app through Python if you want to do that. They've also added a, a new Ken Burns effect, which is hard to describe. You can just search it and you'll find uh, many examples of Ken Burns effect, uh, but they've made it an easy way to do that in this latest release. Uh, they've actually have a viewer size snaps at 50% when resized. They've also added some timeline markers, which you can make put markers on the timeline to keep track of different notes and stuff, which is really cool. Support for nested timelines, which is very interesting. Also uh, refactored, refactored the media library, as well as streamlined the render dialogue UI to make it easier to use, and a bunch of other stuff, including just you know new keyboard improvement, uh, keyboard shortcuts for uh, better workflows and that sort of stuff. Just tons of stuff. If you're interested in checking out a non-linear video editor and you haven't heard of PitTV, it is they've they've done a lot of improvements from the previous versions, so it's very cool to see what they're doing. I think that there's a lot of great options on uh, video editors, especially open source video editors these days, and PitTV is just is another one to check out if you're interested. So I have a link to the latest release of 2020.9 in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that I use and trust, and if you want to check it out, go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. So password managers are great to have because they allow you to have a lot of complex security, but also massive convenience, which is just one of the best things about them. So, and you have to have a different account uh, on every website these days, and you have to have different passwords on every website because that's the best way of doing security because the more you reuse a password, the weaker and weaker that password is. So it's better to have different passwords for every account on every website. But how do you keep up with it, right? So you use a password manager, and password managers like Bitwarden provide a lot of great value in addition to just having to keep track of it. They also create password generation for you, and also with Bitwarden, for example, you have uh, mobile, desktop, browser plugins, and even command line support on the Linux desktop if you want to use it that way. And you also get autofill passwords, so you don't even have to type the passwords in yourself. So many great values. But the reason I'm a huge fan of Bitwarden as a password manager, and the reason I trust it, is because it's 100% open source software. They even allow you to self-host it if you want to, which is just fantastic. So if you're interested, go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. But if you're like me, though, you want to show your support for the company because they do this for that open source. They approach the open source aspect and they embrace the philosophy. And I just want to support them anyway for doing it. So I got the premium account, which is only $10 per year. That's right, just $10 per year and you get one gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, and a bunch of other stuff, including Vault Health Reports and Priority Customer Support. And they also have Enterprise and Business Editions, so if you want to have a team of people using this service, you can do so in a really easy and convenient way. Check out bitwarn.com slash DLN to get started. And make the smart move like many from the community have, get your free account. Or if you're like me again, you'll want to check, you'll give the appreciation to show signing up by the premium edition, especially since it's only $10 a year, bitwarden.com slash DLN. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show is Linux Mint has announced that they're going to be packaging their own Chromium. This relates back to a thing that happened a few months ago that we talked about on the show related to Linux Mint being bothered by the fact that Chrome, that Chromium was going to be repackaged by Ubuntu as a snap only format rather than using the deb and there's a lot of reasons around why this is uh, became a thing there was also a lot of drama around it and I'm not going to go into all this massive drama around it because I already did a video on that if you want to check it out I have a link to below for that um, and also 
that that video is a pretty is pretty long. So skip to the two thirds through, and you'll see a lot more about that. So uh, check that out. I have a link to it in the show notes below. And also the the thing is that I I am not a I, I I'm not a big fan of this the decision that created this drama because it cre it was mostly just drama field of why it was happening. But I am glad to see that they're taking on the the situation of doing the work themselves, which previously they were just complaining and they had not announced that they were going to do this. So I'm happy to see that they're doing this because it does eliminate some of the drama of why it was a problem in the first place. So very cool. Uh, Google does also offer their own Chrome browser dev package. So if you wanted to use it, you still could prior to this. But this is so having support with Chromium and this is available for both Linux Mint and LMDE. Uh, so that's Linux Mint Debian Edition. So if you don't want to use the Snap for some reason, you can use the Deb instead. Uh, I don't really have a preference about which one you're using. And and actually, no, I do. I, I would prefer to use the Snap, mostly because the Snap has the, um, the confinement system. And having that confined makes it more... Because Google makes Chromium, it makes me more okay with it being confined rather than the Debian version because the Deb version has um, full root access to your system when you install it. And while it is packaged by people that's not Google, uh, I doubt they're doing like massive, you know, code audits to make sure that the Google's not introducing something. So, you know, which by the way, if you're, that's not a conspiracy thing. Google has introduced things that violate open source in Chromium before in the past. That's so it's, it's, I'm saying that because it is quite possible that they will do it because they have already done it before. So there you go. Uh, but they, they, but Linux Mint did say that they're making their own build server to make this possible, which is great. Uh, but they also did a other couple other stuff in their latest monthly releases or monthly news story, I guess, monthly news blog post. That's it. Uh, they've actually added a new IP TV player, which is an internet protocol TV player, uh, which is called uh, Hypnotics. Uh, the Mint devs received very positive feedback and interest in this as a concept on Linux. So this is the first prototype. There's no like translations or anything. There's like in terms of like, you know, deployment or it was mostly just getting a very minimal user interface, minimal features and stuff like that. And they haven't said whether or not it's going to be a part of the shipping for Linux Mint, but they are making this as a, an option for people who want to have like free IPTV support, for example, to get uh, provide streams for a variety of different TV stations. But of course, it would only support stations that are right now available in the content provider free IPTV. So IPTV content providers can be added by providing a name and an M3U address via command line if you do know of ones that exist that are not a part of that other provider. Uh, but there you go. Uh, so that, I think it's really interesting that they're doing that uh, because the IPTV is something that's been around for decades. And I, it hasn't been that popular in a long time. So I'm kind of curious like what, where this came. Like it, To me, it kind of comes out of nowhere because of all these services like Netflix and you know, sling.tv and all these other things that are kind of sort of like a new generation of IPTV. So I think it's kind of interesting that this was something that they worked on. So um, yeah, if you're, if you have any comments about the uh, Chromium or the IPTV, maybe you're interested in checking out this application. Let me know in the comments below, because I am very curious if you still do want to use IPTV or not. So yeah, uh, links about links for the monthly news for October for Linux Mint in the show in the, in the show notes below. But also, please let me know what you think about the IPTV thing because it's interesting. 
But at the same time, I'm not sure how many people really want that kind of thing. So yeah, comments below. Up next in the show is the latest release of Open Indiana. So for those who are not familiar, Open Indiana is a is a, a an operating system that is derived from Open Solaris and also based on Lumos. So Open Indiana is a FOSS Unix operating system, not necessarily Linux, but uh, still in the same vein. And developers forked Open Solaris after Oracle Corporation discontinued it because, of course, Oracle did because they discontinue everything. Anyway, Open Indiana is named after Project Indiana, the development code name at Sun Microsystems for Open Solaris. So that's why it's called that if you are curious. And this is also a uses a rolling release model. It uses Mate as its default desktop. And the developer, I'm going to pronounce your name incorrectly, so apologize for that. Andreas Wagnitz, I'm not sure. Uh, after almost six months of development, we have released the new Open Indiana Hipster Snapshot 2020.10 right on time for October 31st, 2020. So I think that I, I also kind of like the fact that their uh, code name is Hipster because that's just that's fun. Uh, anyway, they've also added a lot of uh, software like Beehive and which is a helps in virtualization of guest operating systems like Illumos or uh, doing something like something like a BSD or something like that. Uh, new remote desktop clients have been added, like Free RDP and Remina, which is really nice. Uh, they also have uh, added the Squeak virtual machine, makes Squeak small tech and QS small tech possible to run on the OS, and a bunch of other stuff and updates like Mate update, uh, VirtualBox update, VLC, Qt, Qt uh, Python, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All those kinds of stuff. But the uh, there is also there's also like a lot of improvements and bug fixes and that sort of stuff. So if you're interested in something that's not necessarily Linux but in the same uh, family of sorts and it's Linux like or Unix like, you know whatever you want to call it, um, you can check out Open Indiana. I'll have links in the show notes below for if, you, if those who are interested in checking it out. Up next in the show is the latest news from Purism. Purism has announced in a blog post that the it's titled Librem 5 Mass Production Shipping Frequently Asked Questions, or FAQ. It's time, and I quote here, it's time we can't tell you how excited we are that we will start shipping the Librem 5 mass production version mid to late November. Right now, we are finishing up on extensively quality control steps and fulfillment procedures so that we can start shipping the revolutionary Librem 5 phone. Like many manufacturers, we utilize a just-in-time manufacturing process for our phones. Okay. There are many advantages behind this, this practice, including the fact that it allows us to iterate minor changes in the process before a defect is shipped to customers. You mean like the short-circuiting you did previously? Uh, pre pre preference order of, of when people will be able to get it will be this here. Early backers of the campaign from the 2017 campaign will be able to get it sooner rather than later. Uh, Librem 5 USA pre-orders will get it after that then general backers and then so for some reason the usa that came out way before way after the general backers is get more okay uh also then there's places people who or, orders uh place their stuff after the shipping begins or uh you know shipping parity i don't know what they mean by that but when a phone is becoming ready for someone they'll be sent out an email to confirm shipping address modem choice and other details starting november 9th so they say that for everyone but early backers, Purism says we estimate a few months to get through the most of the backlog, but we do not know yet exactly when a particular person in the general backer line will get their phone. 
They do say that if you have deferred to Evergreen, then you'll get Librem within this year, you know, supposedly. Uh, otherwise, some date after 2020. So they are saying that they're they're going to be getting people who are uh, in the earlier back early backer stage getting it between November and December. So that's good. They're only a year and a half late, or is it two years now? I don't remember, but something like that. So finally, it's it's supposedly showing up, and that. But also, they said that last year in, in October that it was shipping then. So we don't really know for sure. Uh, but there's some people who have said on the like on the Reddit, like, you know, it's the there there is a pandemic happening. So there the issues of delays is a problem, but it hasn't been happening for two years. So that's not really the case for this particular company and this particular product. Um, there's if you're if you're on the fence about whether or not Purism is doing something good, I think they have the best intentions, but they are not executing very well and are also very much manipulating what it sat what their claims are because they've been saying things for many long time that they even started deleting blog posts i noticed that from july 2019 to march 2020 they have no blog posts even though they made one like every month or so last year so where did they all go i don't know that just seems a little weird right but i do remember in october late late last late october last year they made an announcement like we shipped it yay but it didn't ship because it was prototype still. And, you know, they patted themselves on the back like they accomplished something, but they didn't actually do it. And then when people started receiving it, they were getting short circuits. They were getting the phone not being able to make phone calls and all sorts of weird stuff. So maybe this just-in-time processing is not the best approach. Just saying. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. But we're going to have a quick game here on this latest news related to Purism's Librem 5. And we're going to call it, Will It Ship? The new game show on This Week in Linux is, Will It Ship? So we have some contestants here that are going to be participating. What would you say, uh, will it ship the Librem 5 this year? No. No. Okay. Next. No. No. So that is two contestants that do not think that it will be shipping. So the actual answer is, I guess we'll just wait to find out what the answer is. <laughs> but uh, that's two no's. I also, as the host, I will agree that it's probably not going to happen. But if it does, that'll be great. It will only be two years late. Cool. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you'd like what I do from this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Tux Digital Channel or This Week in Linux podcast, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. Or you can order the Linux Everywhere t-shirt by going to dlnstore.com. This is a shirt I designed to convey the message that whether or not you know that Linux is there, it probably is, which is why it has Tux blended in the background to convey that message. And we also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find places, places like Amazon, Private Internet Access, Humble Bundle, and many more by going to Tux digital.com slash affiliates. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern, so join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week. This show is a global show with people watching all around the world, which is totally amazing. And I realize that saying Eastern time is not really that helpful for 
a lot of people. So I provided a time zone converter link that is in the description and in the show notes to make it easy for people to be able to find it out what it is in your time zone. So check that out in the links, the links below for the description and in the show notes. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next time for another episode of your weekly source for Linux Good News.